listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Having worked as a journalist in a large international publishing company and at a prestigious literary agency, my guest on today's show has accrued a lot of experience in the publishing industry. However, Leila Devji is now bringing all of that knowledge to the world of self-publishing, having set up the Acorn Independent Press and I Am Self-Publishing with her brother Ali. Acorn was launched in 2010 and offers a bespoke consultancy for self-publishing projects for authors, agents and media companies who have special or complicated projects. Whereas I Am Self-Publishing was launched in 2015, offering off-the-shelf self-publishing services and marketing tools to authors. There's an awful lot to talk about there. Welcome to the podcast, Leila. Hi, thanks for having me. You've had a fascinating career because you've had a foot in the traditional publishing industry and the in the indie industry have you always veered to indie and and new authors um i've always veered to new authors um i started off um working in a a large publishing big one of the big trade publishing companies and the thing that i really liked out of my job there was working directly with authors and kind of developing authors and helping them come up with story ideas or helping them tweak bits of their stories so it was kind of a natural progression to move from trade publishing to being a literary agent because there you spend a lot of time working directly with authors, and it's really the story that's the part of the whole publishing process that I enjoy the most. Um, So I hadn't necessarily planned to go indie, um, but the publishing industry has had a big shake-up, and there are lots of kind of new landscapes and new opportunities um, that have come that way. Is it fair to say the writings on the wall for the traditional publishing industry? Um, I don't think that's completely fair to say. I think it's definitely changing. And at the time I kind of left traditional publishing industry, they, they didn't really believe it was going to change so much. I think there was a, a huge sense of resistance, um, particularly to ebooks, And people didn't really understand how much of a big deal Amazon were going to become and kind of how dangerous they could be to anyone in publishing. So I think the traditional publishing has definitely had to kind of swallow hard and realise that this is the reality of trading today. And um, you can see there's been lots of smaller presses going out of, out of business completely, sadly, particularly for niche things like literary fiction and poetry. Whereas um, in the bigger publishers, you've got massive mergers, lots of people being made redundant. My friends who are still working in the big publishing companies I used to work with seem to go through rounds of redundancies every kind of six to 12 months. So I think traditional publishing is still in trouble, but they've got more of a sense of um, fighting their way through and embracing digital, I think, now. Do you think it's better to think of it more as a reshuffle, a readjustment? Yeah, I mean, maybe everything needs a reshuffle and a readjustment just to kind of get the balance back to normal every now and again. Um, I think there's obviously 
great things that have come out of this, you know, the birth of self-publishing, the fact that authors now can get their work up on Amazon, which is the biggest retail platform ever. Whereas previously, if we look back, say, 10, 15 years, if you had a very talented author who didn't get picked up by a traditional publishing house, there's no way they can really get a product to market um, in the hands of readers. So I think there's ups and downs to everything, but this new new area has created a lot of um, opportunities and I think is actually a lot better for authors um, because authors have now got more choice, more access to retailers and readers, and um, they can really take control of the process. Whereas before, if you, they were traditionally published or they had an agent, they weren't really hands-on. They're kind of deliberately kept at arm's length from the whole process and don't really understand necessarily what's going on day to day and can't have an impact. You know, they might request something from their publishers on the marketing front and the publishers just won't do it and then there's nothing else that can be done. Whereas now authors are a lot more um, independent and in control of the whole process. I think you've had a, a fascinating career and I just want to explore that career progression with you because you really have been very firmly rooted in traditional publishing and that here you are now at the cutting edge of yeah. indie publishing <laughs> uh, and I think that puts you in a unique position actually it's very interesting to explore so um up until 2010 then you were at Shieldland Associates and that's a real that's really traditional I mean it's been going yeah. since 1962 you've got people like Pam Ayres in there Melvin Bragg mm-hmm. uh, Peter Ackroyd so yeah. that's very trad isn't it yeah it is very trad um And how those sorts of agencies work is that you have kind of a few of those super duper big, big, big clients, um, the like that you just mentioned. And they're the ones that kind of pay everyone's bills. And then Hmm. you're you're, um, taking a punt on a new a new branch of authors um, every year. So you'll have a few that are very, very big authors. You'll have some kind of mid-list, what they call mid-list is kind of medium-sized authors with one or two books under their belt. And then you'll have a kind of nursery of new authors um, that you're developing. So it's it's very traditional there. You're kind of working directly with authors, um, negotiating contracts with publishing houses, which um, is always quite difficult, um, especially if... um, you've got a debut or someone that doesn't have a big author platform and you're trying to get a little bit more money or a little bit more marketing for them. Um, their publishers were very much of the opinion that we should be grateful for any deal that they were offering us and um, shouldn't have the audacity to try and improve the lot of the author. Um, and also pitching, um, that was a big part of the job. So knowing which editors like which sorts of books and then when you do have something hot that comes your way making sure you know you're the first person that can get it to that editor and and that's another thing that had kind of changed whilst I was there because of these smaller presses being shut down and the bigger presses merging there's actually less editors to pitch to so um, the whole pool is shrinking so if you've got a, a great new author of a certain genre they might be say five or ten authors who love that genre in London And then once they've all said no, then where do you go? So that was kind of what I was up against towards the end of my time at the literary agency because the financial crash had hit and um, the publishing houses were trying to get rid of contracts that they'd already signed up, so basically to cancel contracts. So when they're in the mood for cancelling contracts and making their staff redundant, they're not really in the mood for you telling them that you've got, you know, the best new thing and that they should spend more money on this new author 
that doesn't have any proven sales record. It was just a kind of a bad financial climate for um, unknown or niche authors at that time. I think one of the things I hadn't appreciated till I started immersing myself in podcasts and really learning about the, the industry is is how much risk there is mm. for the traditional publishing yeah. agencies. It really is like, it's like Dragon's Den, you're effectively <laughs> backing a business, aren't you? Well, yeah, I think the, in the olden days um, in trade publishing, they, they might take on five books in, or any one editor might take on five new books a year in the hope that one of them will make it and that will support the other four. So you've always kind of got a balancing out. But the attitude has completely changed Um and now every single one of those five that you take on has to be a dead cert, which is obviously really, really difficult for the commissioning editors. So they, it's kind of no wonder that they are looking to people who either already have a TV presence or already have some kind of platform, because it's very difficult for, say, a debut fictional author who doesn't have any backing in terms of anything that the um, financial director is going to give credit to to um, jump through that hoop. I think it's quite instructive, though, for the authors, because from an author's point of view, you're sending all these books in and uh, maybe getting knockbacks all of the time. But it, it probably helps in terms of author's ego to, to view it in terms of a business, that they actually need something that's yeah. a sure bet to a certain extent. Yeah, exactly. And in that sense, anything that an author can do to make themselves look like a better bet um, should definitely be done. So things like building your online platforms, building your social media followers, um, you know, building your connections within um, the genre fiction world, joining communities, um, all of that stuff counts because it's not enough just to have written a good book. Now, publishers have already got loads of good books sent to them every week. So they're looking for which one they're going to pick and they're going to pick an author who looks like they're kind of commercially switched on um, will be willing and helpful when it comes to promoting the book and has already got um, an audience of people ready to buy this book. So there's an appetite for this product already. One of the things that I uh, you know, feel about the, the traditional industry, and probably many indie authors feel like this, is that they're really quite, they feel like the, the gatekeepers, that they're, they're people <laughs> who say no yeah. rather than saying yes all of the time. Yeah. How, how, how fair is that? What's it like from your point of view, having been in that situation? Well, I think it's definitely true that they say no much, much more than they say yes. Um, so maybe if I just show, tell you how the acquisition process works, yes, um, you could get an idea so the first hurdle an author normally has to get is to get a literary agent and that's not easy because the agent's probably being sent hundreds of manuscripts every week and they don't even have time to read everything that they get sent so um presuming you you have got through that hurdle and you found an agent who champions you um, the agent is then going to pitch to the editors that they think are most likely to take up the book um, and then if the editor likes it they've got to get all their other editorial team um on board with it and they then have to get the um members from the other departments on board with it too so they'd have to have a meeting with the finance people the marketing people the whole team the whole publishing company has to say we think we can make money on this this is how much we think we can make or we don't believe we can make enough money on this to make it worthwhile 
so you're almost doomed before you start. I mean, that's a lot of hurdles to jump over. I know it is kind of like an Olympic race when you think <laughs> about it. That, I mean, and that's that's the frustration I think of, of the literary agency is that you can get so far along that process with really really positive feedback. You can find an editor that totally gets this book and what's special about it, but if they can't convince their colleagues in their department or their colleagues in other departments, particularly marketing and finance then it doesn't matter how passionate they are. They could completely share your passion for the book, but they can't get it on that next step up, which is what it needs um, to move forward. Now, I'm very interested. This, this sounds like a job interview because I'm, I'm sort of going through your CV here. Oh, but gosh, you, I haven't <laughs> <those> a long time. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Um, you made your first self-publishing moves in, in 2010, yeah. and, and that was pretty early, I think. Yeah. So, had you seen the writing on the wall? Had you seen the way it was going? Well, um, I had seen that, that there was a shift. Like, publishing was in flux then. As I said, the, the um, recession hit the publishing industry hard. And there was definitely a sense that things were never going to be the same again and there was going to be something different that came out of this. Um, and because the risk-averse attitude of the publishers had just become so extreme in my view that most authors, most talented authors I was working with weren't getting published. And at that point there was no uh, really respectable high end self-publishing alternative for me to recommend these authors onto because at that time the self-publishing companies that were out there were mainly just printers um, who would kind of you could send files to and they'd print you a box of books, but they weren't really offering um, the same workflow as a project would go through in a traditional traditional publisher. So there was a huge quality issue. And then you don't want to recommend your authors to go to places where it's probably going to be really expensive and the product's not going to get stocked in bookshops because it looks awful. So I was partly thinking, what can I do with all these talented authors I've been working with for so long that can't get published? And then at the same time, the ebook market hit, as I mentioned before. And I think that gave authors a lot more opportunities. Um, and we were get, started working, actually, when we first set up with authors who might have their paperback traditionally published, but the publisher didn't have the ebook right, so they'd do the accompanying ebook kind of with us independently. Um, and that would be a great way for them to make a bit more money because in the traditional model, the publisher obviously takes the lion's share of all the profits. Yeah, you led one of the first literary agency ebook programs in the UK. That that must have been a, a fascinating project and a really interesting time to be doing that work. Yeah, I mean, at the time, it did seem very new and interesting, whereas a kind of now the idea that there's a literary agency that doesn't have a direct line to Amazon um is kind of crazy but um back then um the lines were very strict on literary agents kind of publishers production um and any kind of merging of that so for example a literary agency that starts to publish its own ebooks was really viewed with a lot of suspicion and kind of ethical questioning um in the industry as a whole you know is it a literary agent's place to be working with retailers and producing work surely they need to just stick to what they do best and pitch to trade publishers but the fact was all the trade publishers were turning everything down and the literary agencies are still businesses they still need to make money and they still need to get do what's best for their authors so um 
at Shield Land, we started to produce um, ebooks and work with Amazon directly. And then I think I'm sure in, in the year or two that follows, Amazon started working kind of with every agency. But often with these things, it's just the first couple of people that do it that get all the attention and all the kind of um, reaction from the industry. Um, because publishing is very change averse. I'm not sure if uh, you worked that one out yet, but they're always very, very suspicious of, of change. Um, so, yeah, we were one of the first people to do that. And now I think it's just part of the course that so many agencies do it. And, and not only in ebooks, but we have some agencies that produce their own paperbacks as well. Some agencies actually now have their own imprints. So they actually publish as publishers the work that they really like that they haven't been able to place traditionally. So it's all change. It must have been evident, though, even then, that there's more profit in something that doesn't actually exist, an ebook, than there is in a paperback uh, pro- product. Yes, exactly. Because um, with the paperback, you've obviously got to pay for the printing, the warehousing. It's going to go on a van to, a, a, you know, from the where- distributor's warehouse to the retailers. Then it's got to go from the retailer to the customer. And with the ebook, once you've created that file, there's no more unit costs. You know, you'll share that file that you've created, but that's it. It doesn't cost you anything to sell it um, to one person or to 10,000 people. So it was clear that the ebooks were more profitable. But back then, the publishing industry as a whole didn't understand how much of the market share ebooks would um, make up in the end. So people still didn't really believe that. Um, Kindle readers, for example, would become as powerful as they have done today um, because the enduring power of paperback, they thought, would kind of last forever. Um, Carry on, sorry. No, and I think that there there will always be a market for paperback and hardback books particularly. So I'm sure that the kind of publishers that produce gorgeous coffee table books will always still be there. Um, but it's just that kind of stuff in the middle, the kind of more commercial genre fiction, the commuter reads, all of that now has pretty much become ebook. And, you know, you only have to get a train or a tube or go to a beach and see how many people are reading Kindles or iPads. So it, it's hugely changed. And obviously that's much more profitable for authors. So great news overall. It's interesting, though, that even in 2016, the traditional publishers are pricing their ebooks mm-hmm. over often over the £10 mark, whereas the indie authors are all in the 99 pence generally to, well, maybe 499 but they're in that lower range. Are, are the traditional publishers still getting it wrong, trying to apply an old model to something that's completely new? I don't know whether I could say that they were getting it wrong, but I think they are playing catch-up when it comes to the model. Um, you know, most debut authors know that they can't price their ebook at £10 because they'll be competing against authors that everyone's heard of. You've probably had their books turned into films. You know, they've been everywhere that are much cheaper. So I think, um, and, and I suppose that's the danger that if you're an author at a traditionally published house and you want your ebook to be 99p or 299, you've got absolutely no say in that at all. You know, your publisher could completely misprice your ebook, make it far too expensive, and then it won't be a success. And then when it comes to your next book, they'll say, sorry, the first book wasn't a success. So pricing is very important. And I think it's always good to be competitive. So however you're publishing, whatever you're doing, do a lot of research on Amazon, work out kind of what's a sensible price point for your chart. And don't think that you can get away with anything much above that. Um, 
unless you're a very, very famous author or you're doing it for a short time or it's a bundle deal or something like that. But the whole, the whole thing with, with self-publishing, when it first started on the paperback side, is that the self-published paperbacks used to be really expensive and the printing technology just wasn't really there yet. And it's very difficult if um, you've got two books in your hand, uh, one that's cheaper by a famous author that's had lots of acclaim and one that's more expensive by an author you've never heard of. You know, which one are you going to go for? So, yeah, I think pricing is really important and it's 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 important to be realistic and competitive about what people are prepared to pay for your book and also think about how many more sales you'd be able to get at a lower price. I spent a weekend at the Festival of Writing in York oh, last yeah. year for the first time. It's fascinating because that was my first experience uh, meeting agents and, and seeing the traditional landscape, if you want. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me from the agent's point of view is that when you send a book in with a with a synopsis and all the bits and pieces, that really it doesn't have a lot of time to make no. an impact. It'll end up on that slush pile pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what makes a book end up in the slush pile and how can authors increase their chances of getting through and right in front of somebody who can actually make some decisions and move things on? Well, I think you've got to remember how busy these people are. It's kind of the same as approaching journalists. These are, are people with so much to do that they haven't got all the time in the world to sit down and read your work from front to back. So you have to grab their attention in the first few pages of your book. So I always say to authors that, you know, you need to make sure that your first chapter is your best chapter. Um, and often it's actually the weakest chapter because particularly for debut authors, they kind of get into the flow of their story writing as they go on and they find their feet with it a bit and they get much stronger towards the end of the book than they are at the beginning. But I think you really need to make sure that your first chapter is the best piece of work because that's what an agent or a bookshop or a reader who's browsing off the shelf is going to have a look at um, when they're making a decision as to whether or not to pick it up. So that's one thing. The synopsis is something that is really difficult to write. Um, it's very tricky to try and explain a story in a page in a way that makes any sense at all. Um, and most authors struggle with this. And my advice would be to try and not pit too much into it, to try and give an impression of who your characters are, give a little anecdote or a fact about your characters that really gives a strong impression of them and makes them three-dimensional. And don't try and explain all the subplots as well as the plot because you'll just end up kind of confusing everybody. And then the final piece is the cover letter. So um, with that, it's always impressive um, if an author has got a good understanding of the genre, the market for the genre, any trends in the genre or, you know, what makes this book special from other books already on the bookshelves in this department. So those are a few things that can kind of help authors put themselves um, in the best position when they're pitching. I hate writing the synopsis. It's really uh, hard. I, <laughs> I always think just read the book, but then you know people haven't got time to read the book. So you, 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 it's something you've got to do, isn't it? Something yeah. you've got to work through, I guess. Yeah. Do, do you find that um, – so I, I, I find that quite a terrifying process, to be honest <laughs> with you, that, that thought that this and, – and you've really got to distill the story. You've got very little – chance really to, to sell it yeah um and you know the person's busy and you know they've got a great pile of stuff to work through and it is sudden death <laughs> uh, so, 
So um, what sort of pitfalls do, do, do authors fall into when they do this? I mean, I think you've hinted at a few of them. But so, for instance, one, one trick I learned at York last year was that um, don't tease the ending. Say what happens at the end. Yeah. Tell them. Yeah, I think there's there's a difference between a blurb or a product description and a synopsis. And this is something that authors sometimes struggle with. So your blurb or synopsis will be the kind of whet the reader's appetite, end on a cliffhanger, lots of intrigue and mystery. Um, but if you're doing a synopsis, then you do actually need to say what is the beginning, middle and end um, of this book. You know, what's what's the main quest or what's what's the main structure of the book who's the main character what happens to them why how do they end up um as as you said these agents don't have much time and if you do one thing to annoy them they'll just put you in the bin because they've got so many others to read that day they're looking for reasons to say no so just don't give yourself one and the other message I'm taking from what you're telling me is that as an author, we shouldn't be wounded or hurt by this process. We should just keep throwing more one at the wall and hoping that it sticks. Well, I think you need to understand it's a numbers game. And um, like I said, when I explained the acquisition process, your, your odds of getting right the way to the top, right the way to a book deal are very small. Um, you know, most people are going to get knocked back along the way. Even J.K. Rowling was knocked back by loads of agents. So um, I wouldn't take it um, to heart too much. It just It's just that those agencies can only take on a limited number of books and those publishing companies can only take on a limited number of books. But that doesn't mean that your book isn't good enough for readers to enjoy. It's just it's not meeting the, their strict criteria that day. So um, I'd say, you know, don't don't get too kind of caught up in that. It's a good idea to do things like join writers groups or get peer feedback on your work. So you've got a bit more confidence in your book and what it is that's great about it. Um, And just if you are thinking of going down the traditional path, know that your chances are quite slim and kind of take it on the chin if you do get knockbacks along the way. And that brings us nicely on to independent publishing. Then, yeah. because, uh, th- that's a real opportunity, a real choice for, for many authors now. Um, again, let's go back to the CV. It's back to the job interview. Okay. So you were are, you are getting into indie publishing in 2010. Could you just talk us through your own indie journey, that you'll move into that part of the industry? Yeah. Um, well, it kind of happened out of a sense of frustration, really, as I mentioned before, that it was getting harder and harder to pitch authors that I thought were excellent um, to the trade publishers and, and almost impossible to get them deals. So I wanted to try and find a way to help those sorts of authors who were brilliant writers that I believed had a good story to tell kind of get to market. So. Having worked in a a traditional publishing company, I kind of knew what the process was, what the stages were, kind of who needs to do what when. So the idea was basically to replicate that model um, in an indie arena so that we would still have kind of the editorial department, the design department, the production team, everything that you would get in the trade publishing company, but just scaled down and made more accessible to authors. So... We wanted to really kind of help all sorts of authors get a really high quality product out there because 
at that time, the self-publishing companies that were around were more focused on print. And as I mentioned, the print quality wasn't great and the print was quite expensive. So it couldn't really truly compete with a traditionally published book. But we wanted to try and um, make it so that those sorts of authors could compete directly with trade publishing trade published books and you wouldn't be able to know the difference if you had those two books in your hand and obviously the same goes for the ebook so it was really about replicating exactly what happens in a traditional publishing company but just making it accessible to authors so were you outsourcing all of the work in terms of the premises of the office that you needed were you running pretty light with that uh, we were when we first started yeah and we still do use a lot of freelancers um, publishing is one of those industries where um, it's really easy to get great freelancers because lots of people do work on the side or after they've had children they just want to do projects so um, we've um, always had a really good um, pool of freelancers um, that we rely on for design proofreading editing typesetting um, all those sorts of things and doing it that way means that you can pick the best person for the project so for example, we have one cover designer who's excellent at fantasy covers, but not she doesn't really enjoy doing other sorts of covers. So having such a big group means that you can always pick the person that will best is best suited for the project. And then how did the business evolve to I Am Self-Publishing? Because you, you've got, undergone a change as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, when we first started with April, we were doing a lot of um, work with literary agencies, a lot of more business-to-business sort of work, mm. um, or with media companies or TV programmes, um, that sort of thing. And we wanted to offer something that was kind of a bit cheaper, a bit more stripped back and off the shelf, um, that ticked the boxes of what most authors that we had worked with over the past few years actually need so it's kind of looking at everything that we were doing before and saying kind of what's essential for authors um because obviously if they're financing it themselves then they need to be getting kind of a good value and, and they need to be seeing something back for that so some of the more expensive things that we offer um through acorn like having a managed pr campaign um we got rid of and instead we've created a marketing video course online course so authors can actually do that themselves so i think as authors are getting more clued up and switched on and you know there's great things like the independence authors alliance where there's loads of knowledge sharing um they're becoming a bit more capable and a bit more involved in the whole process so we wanted to kind of help those sorts of authors um get to market and then really empower them so that they understood kind of how to pitch their work properly, how to market themselves properly and what they needed to be doing online and on social media and all the rest of it. Um, So that's, that's where I am stemmed from. Typically then when an indie author comes to you, are they just clutching a a word document in their (laughs) hand and and it's what happens next? Um, Yes, generally speaking. (laughs) The digital equivalent is that they email it over. Um, But yeah, what happens first is we normally have a, a chat or a consultation with the author to kind of get a good understanding of what their book's about and who it's for, because it's kind of difficult to advise on what's right for a specific project without knowing kind of where the author's coming from and, and what you know who's the target market for the book and what their expectations are and how much time and energy they're kind of willing to put into meeting those expectations so we work with very different sorts of authors which range from kind of 
small family project to authors with much more sense of commerciality that have got kind of goals to be in bestseller charts and they're very keen to get a marketing action plan together and that sort of thing. So because we work with such different authors, it's always good to just have a quick chat with them in the beginning to work out um, what they want. And then from that point, we'd have a quick look at their manuscript and we'd give them some advice and then we would kind of put a proposal together of what we we felt was right for that project. So it might be editing and proofreading and design, typesetting, production, uh, marketing. But there are some things that authors come to us and they already have done. So they might already have the cover done, but they, the interior is a mess. Or they might already have an author website, but they don't know how to use it properly. So um, we're quite flexible um, in that respect. It's just about working out what's best for each specific author and their specific project. And are we getting these books to a traditional quality threshold when we're releasing them? Yeah, we are. I think the um, print-on-demand printing technology in the five, six years that I've been involved in it has changed immeasurably. Um, When we first started, uh, the print-on-demand well, the print-on-demand, which offered distribution as well, was not of a good enough quality for us to use. So what we found we were doing is instead printing short runs um, because that was the only way we could get the paperbacks, you know, to to feel as nice in our hands um, as we wanted them to. Um, But thankfully, uh, that's changed now. So we can go for purely print-on-demand options for... Uh, most authors it's only where an author has got kind of an event or something they need a lot of copies for where we go um offset because the difference in quality um is just narrowing all the time i think that for some things like really high quality color printing the traditional does have the edge but um in terms of kind of the normal paperback there's very little in it now one of the headaches for indie authors is getting their books into Waterstones, WH Smith's libraries and things like that. Is that something that you handle? Because that is a bit of a pain getting involved with Nielsen and an extended distribution, all of these nightmares for indie authors. Yeah, well, we handle the distribution side of it and we um, also register their titles with Nielsen and um, we have the enhanced service there. So all of the title information, the jacket, the blurb, everything goes out to all the retailers and libraries. Um, and we make sure that the books are stocked on the online version. So for example, the Waterstones website. Um, But we create AIs, which are advanced information sheets for authors, which are kind of like a one pager specifically for book buyers that kind of tells them the basic information about the book and why we feel they should stock it. So we um, give those to authors so that they can go out to their local bookshops and their local Waterstones. And on that AI, it explains kind of who our distributors are and how easy it is for the bookshop to get the copy. Because I think bookshops are also very busy and you need to make their life easy. And and if, if they can order your book through one of their existing channels, they're much more likely to do it than to take books directly off an author because if they've got one system you know one set of paperwork one way of doing things if your book can just be added onto that process it's very easy for them but if you're asking them to kind of go out of their way and create invoices or buying patterns in a different way then you're much more likely to get a no so what we do is make sure that all our books are in the right distribution channels and we give the authors the ai so they can go out to their local bookshops and um pitch themselves 
and which we teach them how to do and show the bookseller how easy it is for them to stock the book. When an indie author comes to you, what sort of journey have they had to get to that stage? Do you find that they've been frustrated by these technical elements? Um, it, most of our authors um, have decided on indie publishing from the off um, and are kind of looking for us afresh. But some authors that we work with have tried to do it themselves to some degree and got frustrated somewhere along the way, whether that's because they don't have the technical knowledge to get rid of a glitch in an ebook, or they aren't a business so they can't get an account with a certain distribution company. Um, so we do have authors that have kind of tried to get so far along the road and are either just at the end of their tether and literally will do anyone for someone to take the problem off their hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling, yeah. <laughs> Especially with the technical elements, yes. using the kind of online tools where you upload files and they have kind of a meat grinder that spits something out. And if that thing that they've given spit out is not what you wanted – uh, it's it's very difficult for them to make any tweaks if they haven't got kind of the coding knowledge behind it. So I think generally um, authors know that that sort of stuff needs to be handled by experts. And, you know, there is, if you try and do it yourself, you can end up just tearing your hair out. <laughs> well, one of the things I think um, probably is a bit of a shock to indie authors um, is the expense involved in, in launching a book. And to a, yeah. a certain extent, it's what I said about launching a business that you you wouldn't expect to open a hairdressing shop for instance without having to buy hair dryers and, yeah. and scissors and things like that and it's the same with the book you've got to pay for covers editors proofreaders yeah. um it's quite a lot of money up front yeah. before we even start bringing money in and we might never recover that money it's quite it is quite a punt isn't it, it, it being an indie author it is i think you've got to think of it as you said like a business so you need a business plan um, you know, you need to know um, how much your budget is for, you know, the, the, what we call like pre-press. So anything that's before the press, the files go to press. So that's design, typesetting, editing, proofreading. Um, and then after that, in terms of marketing, there are lots of expensive things you can do, but there's also lots of things that you can do for free that just require a bit of time and effort. But it, it's definitely something to consider, not just the cost, but the time involved of the whole project to do it properly. But with most of these things, you know, you're only going to publish it once and you want the book to be in the best shape it can be before it hits the shelves. So I'd say to any authors kind of thinking about this, just to spend your time and energy or as much time and energy and resources as you can on just making the content of the book really good, making the design and the actual reading experience as good as possible. Because those are the sorts of things that if you don't have them right, you can spend as much money as you like on you know, PR and advertising and everything else. But if whenever someone picks up a copy of your book, they don't like the look of it because the design's a bit basic then that's going to let you down so it is an expense but in order to get kind of the most out of the out of the process it's about kind of making sure your content is as good as possible otherwise you're kind of throwing good money after bad and um, for the rest of the process does that make sense 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had an interesting experience because I am quite geeky. You, you said something earlier about changing the code and and I can I can do that stuff, but I still have technical problems and frustrations mm. and and can't get things exactly the way I want them. And the, the other thing is, I did a a beginner's training course and right. and, and 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 talked because I've done all of it, Audible and everything. Because I like to know how to do everything. And one of the things I realised at the end of it was, you know, why are you doing all this stuff yourself? This is ridiculous. This is not. Um, you should be writing the books. And, and letting somebody else deal with this. And this is a an outsourcing mindset. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it is that, like, it's the same when you, when we run a small business. You, know, you, you have to know what you're good at and what you need to bring in other people to help you do. You, know, you can probably teach yourself to, I don't know, code something or learn something, but is it better and easier to just hire someone else to do that professionally who can deliver in a few days' time? Uh, or if you've got the time to kind of, educate yourself on a whole new process so it is it's a balance i've started to, to snoop around i was snooping around at your prices and sorry to mention the competition you know matador and people like that who offer similar services mm-hmm. and and i have to say I mean, you know you're committed to paying you know i've paid i think it was four five hundred pounds for covers to, to get proper covers done mm-hmm. uh, and proofreaders you know that's another four five hundred pounds for a book and you, you know you're paying all of these anyway and actually when you look at the kind of pricing that we're paying for a bespoke service like yours it doesn't feel like it's actually that much more to me, which is why it's beginning to pique my interest. No, and I think when we um, when we set this up, obviously quality is going to be the highest thing on our um, agenda, but we also wanted to make this um, affordable for authors and to be very upfront about our prices because um, some of the other um, competitors, it kind of seems cheap at first in a bit of the easy jet model, but by the time you've actually got to the checkout, things seem to have miraculously quadrupled <laughs> because yeah, they, they don't kind of really give you what you need all in one go. So you've got to kind of go around adding things to your basket um, to build your own package. And then by the time you've got everything included, it becomes very expensive. So um, just as a consumer, as someone who flies on budget airlines, that really winds me up. So um, I we wanted to be really um, clear about kind of exactly what we offer at what price so we've um, set up packages based on uh, novels being well books being around 75,000 words as we found that that was kind of the norm for the sorts of authors that we work with and um, we have an ebook only package we have a print only package and we have um, an ebook and marketing package which is our main one at about 1900 what I've learned from releasing, I think I've got 13 books now, uh, you, you, as you progress, you learn different things. And another realisation I had is, you know, Paul, it makes more sense, I feel now, to release the ebook first mm. to test the water because the expenses are yeah. so low with that, and then to do a paperback version based on the sales of the ebook. Would you agree with that? Um, well, I can see if you're worried about costs, and, you know, most authors are self-financing this, then an ebook is a lot cheaper to produce and um, there are no unit costs of sales as I mentioned before so you're not paying for that paper printing PNP warehousing any of that stuff so it's easier to make your money back quicker and the only kind of instance where it can be really useful to have a paperback is from the press and media angles so if you actually want to post out sample copies to journalists or bloggers or if you want to send them to booktubers who are the people who do kind of book reviews to camera on youtube they need to have a physical book to hold up so i think it can be um 
a good idea to kind of think of the paperback or have a limited run of paperbacks that you're just kind of thinking of these as fancy business cards. Like these are things to send out to media to kind of get you coverage. But it, I can totally understand from an author's perspective, if you're thinking about costs, you might think, well, it's only going to cost me a few hundred pounds to get the ebook out there. You know, I can do that. Check out what the reader's reactions are. Check out what my reviewers are saying. And then if I feel like, I might, there might be some changes that I need to make before I do it in the paperback version. Maybe there's there's a little bit I need to rewrite or a little bit I need to look at again. So it's definitely a really good, cheap way of testing the water. And when authors work through you, do they keep all of their royalties or do you take a cut? No, they keep all of their royalties um, and they obviously will keep the rights to their work as well. So what we do is we set up accounts um, for authors with people like Amazon and Ingram um, so that they can be paid directly by retailers and distributors. And they can also kind of log on to a dashboard and check out what their live sales are at any time, because that's another massive difference with the trade publishing world. You would get two royalty statements a year. So there's only two days a year when you've got any information as to how your books are selling. Um, And these days when you've got short promotions um, or voucher codes or, you know, you might be running a Facebook ad, there's no way for those traditionally published authors to know if their marketing spend is kind of giving them the return on investment that they need it to because they just don't have access to sales figures. So... um, we found that bit frustrating for authors. So we wanted to make sure that authors could kind of log on at any time and just check out how they were performing. If they had done something special to promote it, to see what the impact of that promotion could be. Cause otherwise they can't really be in a position where they can make a decision on whether it's worth kind of repeating that promotion or trying something mm. new. They're just kind of going at it blind. No, that's a good point. Um, while I've got you on, because you've got, you'll have an interesting view on this, one of the things that struck me about listing a book with Ingram Spark mm-hmm. was the fact that I was expected to give a 55% discount and then potentially even sale or return, which horrified me because as a business, yeah. it's like saying I'll deliver 2,000 2, units and, and we'll do, you'll just pulp them if you don't want them. And that's a huge business exposure. Yeah. Is, have I interpreted that correctly? No, you're right. It is a huge business exposure. But I would say it's not a serious concern for um, a self-publishing independent author unless bookshops are stocking your book in huge numbers. So, for example, when I was at a trade publisher, um, you would get Waterstones or someone big ordering tens of thousands of copies of a celebrity biography. But if that celebrity was not so shiny for whatever reason, (laughs) by the time it came to that publication date, because they would have put their orders in, you know, four months, whatever in advance, then you could be in in a situation where you have tens of thousands of copies just being returned to the warehouse. And that's obviously a huge exposure. But um, in our experience, the kind of local independent bookshops and even local Waterstones probably aren't going to be ordering more than kind of 10, 20 copies at a time. Um, Because the way print on demand works, it's very quick and easy for them to get more copies. So they'd rather order a little amount every other day, say, or, or often, than to kind of put all of their eggs in one basket and place one massive order. So I think in reality, the sale or return um, risk is not so high for self-publishing authors. Just maybe keep an eye on it if if bookshops are starting to order in in, in huge quantities. Because if they've just ordered a few 
they'll probably keep them you know even if they don't sell they might try them somewhere else or you know and it's, it's kind of no skin off their nose it's only really for the bookshops who have massively overextended themselves by kind of going hard after one specific title that they think is going to be huge that is then not as big as the hype which doesn't often happen in in the self-publishing world if i asked you to look into the future with your experience of traditional and indie publishing where do you think the industry is going what do you think the changes are going to be um i think it's going to be exciting i think lots is going to change um i think there's going to be an increase in apps for readers and writers um, already kind of at the book fair this year there's lots of tech companies um, that we've been chatting to that are either offering new ways for writers to reach readers in a kind of more serial magazine way or new collaborative tools for writers to kind of help them create stories or help them storyboard stories so I think that there's going to be a lot more tools available um, for writers to help them uh, produce that work um, I think self-publishing is going to continue to grow particularly in genre fiction and I think the gap between the self-publishing and trade publishing in terms of kind of the chart position and sales will really narrow um, sadly probably lovely independent bookshops and libraries will still continue to close and Amazon will continue to dominate the world um, mm. But I think there'll definitely be some interesting changes and it's getting more author centric. So most of the changes we've had in the last few years have actually been to the benefit of authors. And I think that will continue. And do you think it will be harder to tell the difference between an indie book and a traditional book? Will we, they merge so that you, you honestly don't know the difference as a buyer? Yeah, I think that will definitely happen. I think it's, it's very close to happening. And it has happened in, with some printing companies, not all printing companies. But um, they know that, that that's the future. Um, and traditional publishers themselves are using print-on-demand technology for kind of more niche titles or titles where the, the, the demand is not so high anymore. So there is a pressure on the printers to really improve their game when it comes to printing quality. And I think that it, there will come a time very soon where you can't really tell the difference. It's been really interesting talking to you today, Leila. Thanks ever so much for your time. Could you just let us know where we can find out more about you and... I am self-publishing. Yeah, sure. Um, our website's probably the first place to go to, which is www.iamselfpublishing.com. And we're also on Twitter at IamSelfPub. And if anyone wants to contact me directly, um, my email address is Leila, L-E-I-L-A, at IamSelfPublishing.com. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.